It's my joy to lead us on our continuing journey through the book of Ecclesiastes uh, together. Um, For those of you who'd like to look at it, instead of having it on a slide, it's on page 10 in your order of worship there in the ESV translation. You're free to obviously use your own smartphone. The ESV app is very well done. Or if you'd like to turn there in your own Bible, or perhaps you don't have a Bible, you can use the chair Bible there in front of you, and it'll be on page 522. And if you don't have a Bible at home, please take that one with you as our gift. We'd love for you to have that. And then boys and girls who are remaining in the service, you have your own uh, version on page 11 that I'll be referring to uh, throughout uh, this sermon this morning. So we're doing a continuing journey through this book, and sometimes it's hard, maybe if you're visiting with us, you haven't, or or you've been on vacation or something, sometimes these passages really depend upon the passage that comes before, and this is one of those. I kind of want to get us kind of to dwell in last week's passage for just a bit before we jump in today. So last week's passage encouraged us to live and hope actual commands from the last couple verses, to actually rejoice and celebrate simply being alive. But it tells us that knowing that we're going to die hinders that rejoicing. And that under the sun, his phrase that the writer of this book used, this pastor philosopher, his phrase for life in a frustrating world is under the sun where instead of living in hope as a gift from God, we try to find our hope in our passions. And so that steals our joy because when we're really passionate about something, we have a hard time with people who either aren't passionate about it or who are passionate maybe against our thing, and it makes it hard for relationships when we base it all on our passions. That was all last week. Okay, and standing in that is where he's going to jump forward this week. And where he's been in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's done all these experiments, we'll call them, with these various worldviews. He's lived truly and authentically in these different means of coping with life under the sun. And he's done the experiment, he's collected the data, he's analyzed the data, and after all of that, he gives a simple instruction for flourishing under the sun in a world that's difficult. It's to have joy. That's it. Or to enjoy our joy, as we put it. And so in today's text, the writer wants to dig in again into what real thick joy looks like. And it's interesting that he is taking so much time, a chapter and a half so far, to really help us get into joy, to help us enjoy our joy. It's almost like maybe he knows that certain people have issues with joy in their Christian life. Now, I want to give you a mental picture of what's going on here. Okay, I want to, I want to, I want to put a picture in your mind. So what we're going to do, we're going to do a little class activity together. Everybody take out your order of worship, if you would. Okay, and I want you to turn to page two, the inside front cover, page two. Every week, Mike and I come up with some meditative quotes that's, that are loosely related to the overall themes of the service, kind of lead us into God's worship. And I want to draw your attention to the second one there on page two. It's part of a prayer, and it says this. It is the discovery of your goodness alone that can banish my fear. Allure me into your presence. Help me to bewail and confess my sins. And it comes from a a thing called the Valley of Vision, which is a collection of Puritan prayers. And here's why I draw your attention to that. Because when we hear the word Puritan, we very often think negatively. 
That's because the Michael Moore of his day, Nathaniel Hawthorne, wrote this salacious book called The Scarlet Letter that has informed our culture on what we think Puritans are more than the actual Puritans themselves, okay? So if all you know of Puritans is The Scarlet Letter, y'all don't know nothing about Puritans. Let me tell you that. They're great people, but I'm belaboring this because I want to kind of just dip my toe into the negative stereotype to help us understand this passage. And here's what I mean. Many of us struggle with joy as Christians because we have a tiny little inner Puritan who lives right here. This Puritan is suspicious of joy, believes all pleasures are guilty pleasures, and makes us feel ungodly, even immature, if we are too happy. Yeah, I know, it's not just you, you're not alone. And it is directly against that inner Puritan that this text today speaks. And so with that, would you please look with me now at Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verses seven through 17. This is God's word. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. But time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Let's pray together. Now, gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, as we come before your word this morning, we come owning the fact that this text is unique, different. And so we ask, Lord, that you open it up to us that we might see your truth, that we might see the beauty of your grace, that we might yet again behold Jesus Christ, as he's portrayed in the gospel, is crucified, buried, and risen. We pray that by your spirit, you would open this text up to us and us to it. And Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to jump in right away and give us the theme for today, the, the thing we're going to kind of try to orbit around all of our thoughts today, and that's this, is that when God enjoys you, you can enjoy your joy, even when others forget you. And what we're going to see in this text today is this, is that God's approval fuels our joy even in an uncontrollable life, even when the approval of others fails. 
So we're going to jump right in verses 7 through 12 with live like you were dying. So I admitted last week that all the sermon texts and all the points throughout this whole series have been songs. This is a Tim McGraw song. I hope you know this Tim McGraw song. This is a great one. It tells the story of a man with a terminal diagnosis. And his friend asked him to set up the chorus. Man, what'd you do? You guys want to start singing right now. I know you do, right? Yeah, he goes, I went skydiving. I went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. And then it turns to significance. It says, and I loved deeper and I spoke sweeter and I gave forgiveness I'd been denying. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. That's exactly where this text begins today. That very first word, go there, is literally the Hebrew word for walk, and it's used as a metaphor, as a picture of all of life. We could legitimately translate this very first word as live. Get out there and just live it up. In a subsistence culture, we're all but the very top. We're experiencing food insecurity. If you're not up on your current sociology slang, that means most folk were hungry, always never satisfied. To that kind of people, he says what? Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. And this verse is in the specific context of the verses that came before last week where it's in life's uncertainties. It's in a looming death that you know is coming, but you don't know when, where, or how. And so what do we do when things aren't going well, when we're in trial, when we might be in life insecurity, not food insecurity? What do we do? We hunker down. We piecemeal out our resources, got to live in moderation, got to make sure we have enough to sustain ourselves. And to a legitimately hungry people who may not know where their food's coming from tomorrow, he says, live in joy today, eat it up today. Drink your wine with a merry heart, rejoice, instead of hunkering down in survival mode. Notice this is a joy that's not based in ignorance. What is this joy based in? He tells us, It's based in God's approval. Did you catch that little phrase? God has already approved what you do. We could say God is pleased with you. God is favorable toward you. God is satisfied with you. This is a word used throughout the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy for specific religious ceremonies of God's reaction to. We could even say how God feels about our sacrifices and our ceremonies. God says, if you do it this way, I am pleased. I approve. Imagine the freedom we Christians could live in if instead of listening to our inner Puritan, we actually believe that we're approved by God. Our inner Puritan has power over us, you realize, when we don't believe the gospel. Because in the gospel, we're told what? That Jesus lived the life we should live before a holy God. Our inner Puritan is right. We are not holy. God demands holiness, and we need something. And so instead of telling us to try harder, do better, feel more guilty, maybe he'll accept you if you're sad enough. No, the gospel says look to the works of Jesus and believe in his works for you. The gospel also tells us that Jesus died the death we should die before a just God. Our inner Puritan is absolutely right. We are worth nothing. We are worthy of death. Our righteousness before God cannot give us God's favor, but in faith we are given the death of Jesus for us. He is punished for us. And so based on the life, death, and then resurrection of Jesus, the gospel tells us God approves us. 
When we place our faith and trust in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. It's what theologians call union with Christ. And so when God looks upon us, if you are in Christ, we get to hear those incredible words from the Gospel of Mark. Behold my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. Or we could even translate, whom I approve. Resting in God's approval means that life's enjoyments are not guilty pleasures, they're godly pleasures. God is pleased with us and wants us to be happy. God takes pleasure in your pleasure, these verses tell us. You believe that? It would mean a brooding Christian is a contradiction. And I can back that up because verse 8 tells us to make your joy apparent to all. In a culture that was way more into gestures than we are, you know if you're familiar with the Old Testament, when bad things happen, when they're supposed to either be publicly repentant as a society or individually repentant, they're told to wear sackcloth, burlap, put ashes all over your head, let your outward appearance display the reality of your heart, much more so than we're into gestures, they're into gestures. So when he tells them, hey, put on white and do your hair, He's telling them, let people see your joy by your appearance. Go get your nails did. Freshen up. Put on your best clothes and let people see you are happy. We're actually told to dress to show our joy and happiness. Your inner Puritan has some thoughts on that, doesn't he? And it doesn't let up. God actually wants us to show off our joy. He approves of it that much. He doesn't let up. Look with me at verse 9. He says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Oh, there's so much grace and authenticity in this one verse. We could spend 30 minutes here. We're not. We, we could. But notice the biblical realism here. He says it's a vain life, a word that means frustrating. And then he says we're going to have double toil. Just catch that, the toil in which you toil. And then he goes on in verse 11 and 12 to tell us that you're going to see frustration, you're going to see unknown hardships, and you're going to see an untimely death. That's all in your future. The passage doesn't deny the reality of a broken world which wounds us and drives us crazy. This is not that, well, Christians should just be happy and ignore all that stuff, just have faith. No. Right here we see the Bible owns there's legitimate pain, there's legitimate evil out there, but there's resources for dealing with all of that. And what are those resources? He tells us the resource we get is we get a portion. How many of you have ever been to a birthday party? I want to see it. How many have ever been to a birthday party? Right. Hopefully everybody else is sad if you've been to a birthday party, right? Hopefully it was a good one, like a kid's birthday party, not that lame thing HR does at your office, right? So hopefully it was a good one. But what do you do, boys and girls in the room? What's the best part of a birthday par party? You can say it. What is it? Cake. I heard it. Cake. You can look at Pastor Sean and see. I know my way around some cake, right? So you get in line. They hand you what? A portion of cake. You take your portion, not the whole thing, just a portion of cake, and your portion makes you happy. It brings you joy in that moment. And what is the portion that we get here? He says, enjoy life with the wife you love. You know, the one time Jesus was asked about marriage, 
He said, you know, there's no marriage in heaven. Marriage is for this life only. And one of the reasons for that is sort of explained right here. Marriage is a portion of the joy and fulfillment God gives you under the sun. For you singles, that doesn't mean it's the only joy. It doesn't mean it's the exclusive joy. It doesn't even mean it's the best joy. It's just a portion of the joy. There's another startling truth here. If I were to stop and ask you, especially those of you who've been around church world for a while, if I were to ask you, hey, give me a couple examples that come, come to mind real quick. What, what is an Old Testament command that God gives us? What are some of God's commands? I'm curious. I wonder if the imperative, the command from verse 9 would be one of the first ones that come to your mind. Enjoy. It's a command. It's an imperative. This is a thou shalt. Right here, God commands us to enjoy the things he gives us. And then how's this for living in color where in verse 10 he tells us, hey, whatever you do, do it with all your might. You don't have to go to that famous verse we, we, we have our kids memorize the New Testament, right? Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, work for the Lord and not for men. You don't have to go there. It's right here in Ecclesiastes 9.10. Work at whatever you do with your might. You know, there was a period for about 600 years where the gospel was lost is really the best way to put it. You can look at the historical documents yourself, primary sources, and see that that's not an interpretation. It was lost. The teaching stopped, and what took over was a system of earning merit to get to God. It became a ladder. You had to climb a ladder of certain behaviors, certain ceremonies, certain practices, certain things you withheld from your life in order to make God happy with you. And it was in this period of church history when the gospel was lost that things such as a celibate priesthood was invented because we all know sex is bad. You should fast a lot was invented in this period because, of course, enjoying food is bad. And even today, there is an assumption by many, aren't, isn't there, that the truly godly avoid alcohol. It's called asceticism, and it's a tendency in most man-centered religions that in order to be spiritual, you have to be careful of the big three. You know the big three. Food, drink, sex. But notice, what are we commanded? There are three actual imperatives in these first couple verses in this passage. We are, thou shouts, we are commanded under God's approval to go out and enjoy food, drink, and sex. How's your inner Puritan doing now? <laughs> now, your inner Puritan right now may be telling you to caveat, and yes, okay, there are caveats for drunkenness, gluttony, and it says wife, not sex, so marriage, yes. But even without those caveats, sit in that and be candid. It bugs you to, to, for me to say it that way, doesn't it? God commands you to go out and have joy in food, drink, and sex. Because our inner Puritan tells us, well, all pleasure is actually temptation. So the safest way to stay morally pure is to chronically be weary of enjoyment. Don't enjoy your joy. Be serious. Be moderate. Be grave. You know, for me, and I bet I'm not alone I end up giving into and following my inner Puritan just to get him to be quiet and leave me alone. And so coming to a text like this is balm for my berated, joy-starved soul. 
I default to getting God's approval through my religious efforts instead of resting upon Jesus Christ alone. It means I don't believe the gospel. And because I don't believe the gospel, I don't really believe that God is actually happy with me, that he approves of me in Christ. And I certainly don't believe deep down that God himself is happy. God's not happy. And so when I read a passage like this, my visceral reaction is, how dare the Bible say this? There's no way this is true. But what if this is the truth? What if God is actually authoritatively revealing himself in this passage that he is a God of love and that in his love he is fully satisfied with his people through the person and work of Jesus. And so in Jesus, God approves us. And in his joyful approval, he commands us to then go and have joy, to appropriate that joy. And he gives us things in our life to enjoy. What if we actually believe that? Now, boys and girls, I want to make sure you're still tracking with me. So let's look on page 11. We're going to look at your verse 7 through 9 together. Okay, boys and girls, you have your bulletin? All right, here's how he said it for you. Get out there and enjoy life since God enjoys you. Wear clothes that show off your happy heart. Enjoy your family and friends in the hard life God has given you because that is what life in this world is. Now, boys and girls, I hope you see that your family enjoys each other. I hope you see that your family enjoys life. I hope that you enjoy being part of your family and enjoy being part of God's family. And I hope, boys and girls, that when you think of God, you think of a happy God, of a loving parent who's happy to see you happy. Because that's how God has revealed himself, boys and girls. So I've been here right at two years at this point. I think sometime in a couple days, it's gonna officially be two years, it doesn't matter. But what matters for this story is that about two and a half years ago, what that means is I was going through some interviews with some people from your church. And I remember middle into January, something like that, 2020, right? As the pandemic was really getting raging up in New England where it started. And we were already kind of on a partial lockdown even in January. And we had this interview scheduled with this group from this church called Sycamore. I guess they like trees. I don't know. And I remember, you know, you never know what to expect when you have an interview. So I'm there by Zoom and Nikki's next to me off camera, but there, and they know she's listening. And it was an hour and a half of laughing, I mean, we're talking like I was exhausted, muscles hurt the next day from just laughing. And I remember as we got off it going, well, that was fun, interesting, unique. Hope we could do that again. A couple months later, got another interview. And it was another hour and a half of, I mean, there was other stuff, but I just remember this hour and a half of just raucous laughter. And, and tears down my eyes. I was laughing so hard at some points. And I remember we got off that off that call, I looked at Nikki and said, I don't know what God intends, but if our children could be raised in a church that joyful, I'd go there for free. Deacons, I don't mean that. Um, <laughs> uh, but, but, <laughs> sorry. <yeah. laughs> Kids like eat, you know? So anyway, <laughs> oh, my, my joyful Christians of Sycamore. Do you realize that it's that joy which is the key to reaching Midlothian with the gospel? It really is. Do you know how the ancient church in Rome grew from 13 guys to a handful of people to be the dominant cultural force in Rome? All while it was illegal to be a Christian and you were persecuted for being one as well. I mean, you couldn't just walk up to someone, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? 
Security, right? Call 911. We got a Christian here. They couldn't do it. What'd they do? Well, we know from actual historical evidence, you can read this, you can look this up, that it was the joy of the Christian community that attracted people to it. They saw the joy in Christians being out in the world and they wanted to know how they got some and that's how they were brought into the community to hear the message. And so today, as we are entering what can honestly be called the new Rome of a post-Christian Western culture, it will be our joy in an increasingly joyless world that will draw people to hear about Jesus. Because when God enjoys you, you can enjoy your joy even when others forget you. Oh, we long for that to be true, don't we? And yet we know that circumstances can conspire to steal our joy, which is where the text goes next, verses 13 through 17. So don't you forget about me. So all this glorious stuff about joy, it's, it's a specific application of what it looks like to be wise. To be, what he wants us to see is after trying all the foolishness the world has to offer, he says, here's what it looks like to be wise. Those who can flourish under the sun instead of being frustrated by a broken world are those who are wise. And so having zoomed in to really emphasize us enjoying our joy, he kind of now zooms out to talk more generally about wisdom. And he says basically that joy specifically, wisdom generally are hard to live in because they're not appreciated. He tells us in verse 13 that he wants to give us a great example, his word, not mine. And so like any good teacher, what does he do? He tells a story to get across his points. I want to look together at the uh, kids' version, if you would, of verses 14 and 15 of this story he tells. It's there on page 11. We have a slide for you. Here's the story he tells. There once was a little city with no army, and a huge army surrounded it. They had no hope, but a poor person used wisdom to save the whole town yet the town never thanked them. They actually forgot about him. So wisdom delivered this town. And so utterly unappreciative of that wisdom was the town that not only did they not thank the man, the text tells us no one remembered that poor man. That should perk your ears up if you've been around Ecclesiastes with us for a while. One of the things in ancient Near Eastern culture was this idea of being remembered, of having a memorial. To hit the refresh button for some of you who may not have been here the whole time, all over the Old Testament you see this weird thing where God does something pretty significant in someone's life and he'll command them, make a pile of rocks and give it a name. And they do, and they go on about their life. And then later, we're told, all the, you go all over ancient Israel, there's these piles of rocks everywhere. And I'm not talking like pillars. I'm talking like it could just be a handful of rocks. And people don't touch it. They leave it alone. And the point is, God says, later on, generations, you'll be walking along, and your son or your daughter's going to go, hey, Daddy, what's the pile of rocks there? Oh, that pile of rocks is named whatever. And then you tell the story of the cool thing God did in someone's life at that point. It has, it's a specific noun. It's called a remembrance or a memorial. And in an ancient Near Eastern culture, you wanted one. The same thirst that our culture has to have a legacy, to have significance, to make our life count was the same thirst that caused them to want a pile of rocks. It's the same heart's desire. And so for this poor man to have performed so magnificently, to have been used so mildly and yet to be forgotten is more than a memory problem. It means he was utterly insignificant. 
and unimportant. He lived a wasted life. In that culture, you mattered only if they remembered. And this poor man's wisdom is not remembered, it's not appreciated, or to use that phrase from verse 16, his wisdom is despised. See, framing it that way kind of helps us understand why these verses are here, because they don't really seem to flow with this whole exuberant joy stuff in here. Let me tell you this sad story now. See, but this story is about having significance. It's about someone who did not have it. They were forgotten. And why were they forgotten? They were forgotten because they weren't approved by others. Anybody ever been overlooked? That stinks, doesn't it? And as we all know, even if you've done everything right, you don't always get the approval you deserve, do you? See, but in the gospel, this story reminds us that you can have joy because God approves you in Jesus. The approval promised in verse seven is denied in this story, so it makes you want that approval in verse seven even more. Joy flows from God's approval. And so, if the joy from verses seven through 12 seems elusive, unattainable, even unbelievable to you, is it because we are living to be approved by others? rather than resting in God's approval? Here's how he puts it in verse 16. He says, I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. So now he applies this lesson of the story. Basically, if we can't count on our abilities to get us the approval of others, is it worth walking with God? Is there joy available? Is it worth it? And of course the answer is yes. And notice the simple, wisdom is better than might. To a culture of ancient traditional values where they really valued masculine strength in battle, all that was summed up in the word might. He comes right out and says wisdom's better than that, even if others hate it. He goes on to say in verse 17, even if you have the loud, long applause and accolades of a whole crowd of fools, it may feel really good in the moment, but the gentle whisper of the wise is better. See what we have here? We have all these themes here of joy and of approval and of significance, all the things that deep down you and I want so desperately. And so the foolish under the sun Look for joy from circumstances to get that joy, that approval, that significance, to get accolades from people. Accomplish something so others will approve you. But the wise rest in God's approval from verse 7. This whole passage, you see, ultimately points us to the gospel because here's the deal. We can't enjoy the gifts that we worship. Say that again. We can't enjoy the gifts that we worship. If we seek our sense of significance from the community God has given us, it won't work. If we seek it from the pleasures of food or from drink or from the spouse God has given us, they can never fulfill that role. I've I've told this story before, but after close to 25 years in, in pastoral ministry, I've done so much initial marriage counseling. And I haven't done like put pen to paper and done the math, but I'd be shocked if it's not at least 95% of the problems can be summed up in this metaphor that I've given before. One spouse grabs a gigantic straw and shoves it in the chest of the other spouse and starts sucking on it for joy, fulfillment, 
significance. Give me meaning. Give me purpose. Make me matter. And so one spouse ends up feeling completely drained, exhausted, and unloved, and the other person feels completely unfulfilled and unsatisfied because you're not doing it for me, and you end up with two people who hate their guts coming into your office going, fix it. Yeah, it's kind of crass, but you get it, don't you? And, and, and if that metaphor really resonates with you, come talk to me. We'll, we'll work on it. But see, your spouse is never designed to be your source. The gifts God gives you to enjoy are never meant to be the source. You're supposed to use the gifts and worship the giver, not worship the gifts. We do the same thing, don't we, with food, with drink, with sex, with accomplishments, with accolades. We look past the gift. No, we look, we look past the giver and we try to focus on the gift. Make, make me happy, fulfill me. But as C.S. Lewis put so well in Mere Christianity, he said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. There is no such thing. He is the source of happiness and peace, not the gifts that he shows us those things through. Our only joy comes from resting in God's approval, and then we can enjoy our joy in his various gifts. See, ultimately, this passage asks, what are we going to worship? The gifts or the giver? And at this point, if we're candid, we have to admit this is the point where our little inner Puritan is probably right because right now he's telling us or she's telling us what? You'll never worship the giver. You always worship the gifts. You, may, you get status from the car you drive. You feel important because the size of your bank account. You feel like you matter because this list of people calls you a friend. You don't look to God. You look to your gifts. Our Puritan is right. We need to be set free from our own foolishness under the sun to have this kind of joy. But thanks be to God that there was another poor man, wasn't there, who by his wisdom rescued a people from a tremendous enemy. The Lord Jesus Christ left the accolades and riches and glory of heaven to live a life of rejection, poverty, and suffering so he could defeat sin and death. And while most of the world forgets and despises him, shouting their accolades even louder at other fools, perhaps in the quiet of your own heart, you hear the whisper of wisdom even now. Repent. Believe the gospel. Even now, you can rest in God's approval of you through Jesus Christ. Cast aside everything you've called religion, all the stuff your Puritan tells you you have to do to make God like you. Just cast it all aside. Forget everything you think Christianity is and place your simple faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone as he's offered in the gospel. You'll be wise. You'll have joy. And you'll start to silence that inner Puritan. Let's pray together. My gracious God and heavenly Father, But even now, my inner Puritan is screaming, it's too good, can't be true, it can't be that simple, can't be that easy, you've gotta get some sweat in the game, do, try, grunt, do something. Father, would you help me earnestly from my heart to repent and believe the gospel again? Lord, and I pray for the other Christians here that you would help all of them to stop 
the default mode of looking to our religious efforts to impress you and that we would rest in your approval because we are in Jesus and you can't approve of him more than you do. Lord, I pray for those here today who may not know you. Lord, I pray that as joy has been held out to them that they want it more than they want anything else and that you would show them new life in Christ. I pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up before all people, you would be true to your promise to draw people to him. Even now, Lord, would you do your work of causing people to repent and believe? Would you build your kingdom here? We ask this, Father, you would do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.